Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flint. Well, Margaret's been a busy couple of weeks in the courts with the healthcare law continuing to undergo legal challenges from a number of sectors, with some recent decisions in several district courts fomenting more controversial interpretations of the Affordable Care Act. Well, that's right, Mark. On the heels of the Supreme Court's Hobby Lobby decision that allowed closely held corporations to refuse to cover certain birth control methods based on religious beliefs, there were lower court rulings on some challenges to the health care law's tax subsidies for people who are seeking to buy health insurance on the exchanges. The U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia ruled that based on a literal interpretation of the language in the Affordable Care Act, states that did not set up their own exchanges are not allowed to provide subsidies to those residents gaining coverage on the federal exchange. If that decision is upheld by the Supreme Court, millions of Americans would not only lose their subsidy to make coverage affordable, they would no longer be required to own insurance under the individual mandate and could lose insurance coverage altogether. Well, this is far from the final word, Mark, but that ruling could have devastating consequences. I think it uh, needs to be noted, though, that a second ruling on the matter in a U.S. district court in Virginia upheld really the same thing, the legality of the tax subsidy, saying that the IRS does have within its purview the ability to authorize subsidies for government-mandated programs. So essentially, we have a diametrically opposed view from the D.C. Circuit Court decision. We're kind of used to those diametrically opposed (laughs) views coming out of Washington these days. We are, and and hopefully on a subsequent show, we're going to have Jonathan Gruber on, who was uh, cited in that uh, U.S. District Court in Washington's ruling, and uh, we'll hear from him his thoughts on it. It's it's left quite a lot of confusion, though, Margaret. Uh, Millions of Americans have gained uh, coverage during the first open enrollment, and at least 75% of those Americans are receiving some sort of tax subsidy to offset the purchase of that insurance. So majority of those who gain coverage could be impacted by these decisions. Americans stand to lose some $36 billion in premium subsidies if the D.C. court decision is upheld. And the Urban Institute paints a pretty grim picture if this scenario does play out, Mark. Essentially, the Affordable Care Act, I I hate to say it this way, but uh, people are saying it becomes a blue state law in which only those folks in states who set up their own insurance exchange can take full advantage of the law's promise, and that is to find a way to ensure that all Americans are covered. So lots more to follow in this incredibly fascinating story. Another story that's unfolding is the ongoing crisis with the tens of thousands of immigrant refugee children being dispersed around the country while they await some kind of immigration hearing. It's a humanitarian crisis that's unfolding right within our borders, and there's no simple solution to uh, to this problem either, though uh, I read with great interest that uh, George Will, the conservative column, this said, just let them in. We can manage that here in America. Well, we were glad to see that because uh, others, such as the federal government, have been overwhelmed by the numbers of children entering the country and so much political discussion, some backlash across the country over what to do with these children. But the fact remains, they're here, they're children, they need to be treated in a humanitarian way. And from what we're reading, many of them have escaped just unimaginable violence and threat in their home countries. Numerous organizations like Save the Children are stepping in to assist in the process to see to it that their needs are met and that children are properly cared for. So another unfolding story that we're keeping our eye on, Margaret. 
And our guest today has her eye on global public health issues as well. Dr. Erica Frank is the Canada Research Chair in Preventive Medicine and Population Health and a professor in UBC School of Population and Public Health. She's also the founder of NextGenU.org, a free global online university that's been developed to meet the growing need in the health sciences. An interesting approach to the need to train more healthcare workers around the globe. Lori Robertson will also be checking in from factcheck.org. And no matter what the topic, remember, you can hear all of our shows by going to CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Frank in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Mariano Hare with these healthcare headlines. House and Senate negotiators announced an agreement on legislation that would allocate $17 billion to overhaul the Department of Veterans Affairs' sprawling and beleaguered healthcare system. But the deal doesn't give the department everything officials there had said is needed to fix the problems. The agreement set off a rush on Capitol Hill to gather signatures from members of conference committees working on the bill so it could be put to vote in front of the full House and Senate before lawmakers adjourned for August recess. The legislation ends a sometimes rancorous standoff over how much to spend to begin to fix the department. And it would help ensure that veterans who face long waits to see doctors at the department's facilities could get appointments more quickly with private physicians. The agreement came about from some rare haggling across party lines, something not seen much in Capitol Hill these days. Medicare's Hospital Insurance Trust Fund, which finances about half the health program for seniors and the disabled, won't run out of money till 2030, four years later than projected just last year and 13 years later than projected the year before the passage of the Affordable Care Act. Unlike Medicare, however, the part of Social Security that pays for people getting disability benefits is in far more immediate jeopardy. The Disability Insurance Trust Fund is projected to run out of money in 2016, two years from now. On Medicare, the news was mostly positive. Medicare considerably stronger than it was four years ago, according to Health and Human Services Secretary Sylvia Burwell. She noted the recent slow growth of the program's spending will likely mean that Medicare Part B premium charge to beneficiaries, currently $104.90 per month, will remain the same for the third year in a row. That's zero growth. But whatever reason, no one can test the slowdown has been dramatic. Medicare, which covered an estimated 52.3 million people in 2013, spent $582.9 billion, and for the second year in a row, per beneficiary costs were essentially unchanged. And how we train our doctors. An expert panel recommended completely overhauling the way government pays for the training of doctors, saying the current $15 billion system is failing to produce the medical workforce the nation needs. They're recommending substantial changes, according to health economist and former Medicare administrator Gail Walensky. The federal government, mostly via the Medicare program, currently provides more than $11 billion per year in payments to support the training of doctors who've graduated medical school. Most of that goes to the hospitals that sponsor interns or residents. There are persistent problems with uneven geographic distribution of physicians, too many specialists and not enough primary care providers. HPV, the virus that causes most forms of cervical cancer, there's a vaccine for that. 
But you wouldn't know it from the numbers of teens receiving it. Though the vaccine against human papillomavirus is highly effective in preventing certain forms of cancer, the number of preteens getting the vaccine is still dismally low, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. One of the top five reasons parents listed they hadn't vaccinated their children was that it hadn't been recommended to them by a doctor or nurse. Federal health officials have for several years been recommending that all preteen boys and girls be vaccinated around age 11 or 12 before the initiation of sexual activity. But data from the national survey released shows only 57 percent of young women ages 13 to 17 and only 35 percent of young men have received one or more of the doses. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these health care headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Erica Frank, professor at the University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health, where she's Canada Research Chair in Preventive Medicine and Population Health. She's also founder, president, and research director at nextgenu.org, the world's first online portal to free accredited higher education in health science as well as in other disciplines. Dr. Frank has been the co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Preventive Medicine and served as the U.S. president of Physicians for Social Responsibility, and she earned her master's in public health from Emory University, her medical degree from Mercer University, and her residency at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Frank, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much. We are in this midst of radical transformation in healthcare and how we deliver it, how we teach it and disseminate it. And you've been instrumental in creating the world's first online university focusing on health sciences. And this is an area not generally associated with online learning by traditionalists in uh, the health industry, although we're seeing this proliferation of MOOCs, uh, massive open online courses being generated from a host of prestigious universities around the world. So tell us what's different about NextGenU and what was the genesis for the idea? We're the world's, essentially the world's first free university. We're the first portal to free accredited higher education. So the first place you can go to and get credit from a university for taking a course for free, uh, which is different from MOOCs, right? They give courses for free but don't give credit, or they give those courses for free, and then you can get a certificate if you're willing to pay. All, so all of that's bundled together for NextGenU. And then we also have a lot of other um, characteristics that are different from MOOCs, uh, some shared with traditional education. For example, we provide uh, mentored activities and peer activities, especially important, of course, in the health sciences where there are a lot of skills that you need to practice. Uh, and we have uh, evaluation built in uh, quite thoroughly, uh, both in a qualitative and quantitative way. We're ad-free. We're free of other barriers as well, like time and place. So there are quite a number of differences for MOOCs. We like to refer to ourselves actually as a doohickey, a democratically open online hybrid of Internet-aided, computer-aided, and human-aided education. So for your radio listeners, that does indeed, as the acronym spell out. To <laughs> I <be> love it. <laughs> and, you, you know, Dr. Frank, it, it seems to me for all sorts of kind of immediately obvious reasons, this has the potential to be a global game changer in terms of the democratization of access to education. And I'm intrigued by the massive level of cooperation that must have been required to pull this enterprise together. Um, I understand you have government agencies from different countries uh, partnerships with numerous universities and international uh, agencies, all offering resources to make this a successful and sustainable endeavor. So I wonder if you would share with our listeners some of the primary stakeholders 
that you've uh, engaged and involved in this project, the agencies and countries you're working with? What are these global collaborations, and, and how are you marshalling and pulling together all of these resources? So how we started was we noticed, like lots of people did, that there are all these remarkable free learning objects that have been posted on the web by governments, specialty societies, peer-reviewed organizations, and universities. Those are our four sources uh, for our accredited training. And we pair them with competencies that have also already been established by expert organizations. So that's pretty inexpensive to do that pairing. And then we work in partnership, as you said, with uh, lots of organizations, governments, universities, and specialty societies to accredit and fund and organize these trainings. So how this plays out, for example, is in Sudan, we have just launched a family medicine residency program, which uh, we have a memo of understanding with the government of Sudan and University of Jazeera, the largest of their 30 medical schools, to train 10,000 family medicine residents over the next five years. We work in partnership with the university, which does the admissions and guides the residents, sets them up with the clinics and the mentors, and we work with the government of Sudan, which pays for the residents' time, which pays for the clinics, which pays for the patients to go to them. Uh, and, and we have a grant from Grand Challenges Canada to work on that, uh, and a similar project in Kenya. One other example to give might be in Ecuador, where we're working with the Accreditation Council on Graduate Medical Education International and the American College of Preventive Medicine to create a globally available preventive medicine residency. And we're doing similar kinds of initiatives in over 100 other countries, including in the U.S. and Canada. And, you know, maybe a few more details about the size currently of how many registered uh, users you have. And I'm sure there is this conflict that goes on with the traditionalist in terms of how effective this training will be. So you might want to walk our users, our listeners, through some of the uh, battles that you've had to fight and how those have been resolved. So I'm a Canada Research Chair, as you pointed out, and this is what a lot of what I spend my research time doing is uh, examining the efficacy of this new kind of educational model. And we've done multiple pilots. The three that we've done in North America uh, having been trained and taught in North America and having that be the gold standard for many people for training in medicine and public health in the world, that's where we wanted to do our proof of concept. So we did two substantive pilots, one at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland, and at University of Missouri with our emergency medicine training. And we demonstrated at both Bethesda and at Mizzou that next-gen users do as well as or better than traditionally trained medical students at two of the most highly resourced emergency medicine training programs in the world. That was very encouraging. And then we also did a flipped classroom um, at Simon Fraser University with our environmental health course, one of the core MPH courses and found that students, again, performed identically on knowledge tests, but reported liking the course even better, substantially higher, like 20% higher course evaluations. So we've been very pleased in terms of the 
proof of concept that it's performed magnificently in North America and it's performing quite wonderfully at our pilot sites in less developed countries as well. Uh, the main foundation of our sustainability is generosity in terms of learning objects, course creators who assemble the courses, folks with expertise in the area who are willing to spend about a month's worth of time over whatever time period they're willing to give to help us assemble the course. But we also have more traditional academic sources. We uh, just received a $15.5 million endowment from the Annenberg Physician Training Program. We've gotten three grants from Grand Challenges Canada, uh, one from NATO Science for Peace Program, one from WHO. So because our burn rate's so low, for our core expenses, about a third of a million dollars a year, you know, that's the equivalent of a couple of fairly fancy faculty members mm -hmm. at most academic institutions. And we're able to run all of NextGenU with that kind of funding. So we've been attractive to funders and to donors, and we don't have a whole lot of maintenance costs. So we're pretty sustainable at this point. Well, Dr. Frank, I want to maybe draw a little analogy to one of our innovations. Our organization uh, launched the first in the country postgraduate formal residency uh, training programs for new nurse practitioners back in 2007. And from the start, all of the uh, organizations that have developed these residencies have had to really grapple with issues that I imagine you're grappling with too, which is training not just to clinical complexity, but really training people to a model of transformative care which means you really need to be in settings which have embraced transformation and innovation. And I'm curious, how are you managing that very uh, tricky area of making sure that the students get the mentoring experience or the clinical practice experience in organizations that really have embraced that level of innovation and transformation that we're looking to see going forward? So we have built in mentored and peer activities. For example, I, I, I ran the preventive medicine residency program at Emory University for a dozen years before I came here, and we used the ACGME competencies, Accreditation Council of Graduate Medical Education competencies, to form the structure of our residency program and identify learning objects and uh, activities that our residents needed to do. We do the same thing with NextGenU. And there are competencies that require mentored activities. Um, our highest use of NextGenU is indeed, as you're suggesting, with institutions adopting the courses and using them for their students. So the institutions, as they always do, identify mentors and have collected a cohort of peers, right, other students. And so that's how those pieces end up getting assembled. We essentially hand an institution or a learner, a course in a box, and they have to identify someone who will let them shadow them, have typical clinical experiences with them, and evaluate them at the end. We provide the evaluations. We're speaking today with Dr. Erica Frank, professor at the University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health, where she is the Canada Research Chair in Preventive Medicine and Population Health. She is the founder, president, and research director at nextgenu.org, the world's first online portal to free accredited higher education in the health sciences. Uh, Dr. Frank, in addition to NextGen, you've focused much of your professional attention on preventive medicine, conducting quite a bit of research in that area, and you have a particular focus 
of study on how practitioners' own prevention behaviors impact their patients. And you found some interesting results in that area. How important is do as I do in getting patients to practice better prevention in healthcare? My main research for the last couple of decades have been on this link between physicians' personal and clinical health practices. And we found an extremely strong and consistent link between what docs do ourselves and what we talk to our patients about. So, for example, as, as you know, I'm riding my exercise as we talk. Um, it's a, you know, this is the kind of thing that if a physician manages to overcome barriers and to figure out how to do it for themselves, it makes them, we have found, more believable and more motivating to their patients. Mm-hmm. So uh, that research has been on identifying that link between what doctors do ourselves and what we talk to our patients about, and then trying to encourage physicians to have healthier habits so that we can have a healthier population as a result. Well, Dr. Frank, among all of the things you've done, you're also a past president of Physicians for Social Responsibility, a winner of the Nobel Prize for Peace, and certainly an organization we've long, long admired. In fact, uh, its founder, Dr. Jeff Geiger, uh, has been a guest on the show, and we recently honored him at our uh, annual Weizmann Symposium. And he is, of course, a pioneer in the area of tackling uh, the social determinants of health. I'd love to link the work that you're doing now with nextgenu.org and the mission of Physicians for Social Responsibility. What's the, the synergy in the mission of these two organizations? Well, for me, as a specialist in preventive medicine and population health and as uh, someone whose research and work has focused on uh, education around health and well-being, they're pretty inseparable, actually. Uh, This is both true in practical terms. We have a climate change and health course, uh, as well as our environmental health course with NextGenU that PSR is a co-sponsor of. Um, And it's also true in more philosophical ways. Both NextGenU and Physicians for Social Responsibility are interested in primarily in addressing the gravest threats to humanity and in trying to redress them through health sciences education and through rational approaches to dealing with the terrible uh, problems now and increasing problems that are going to be coming from climate change. So that's one of the areas where we have a great deal of overlap. Uh, But yes, generally, both philosophically and practically, there's an enormous amount of overlap between Physicians for Social Responsibility and NextGenU. And you talked a little bit about your uh, passion for climate change and its impact on global health. And tell us a little bit about how you've integrated this into any of your course structures for people, or are you uh, is that sort of a side uh, uh, a side uh, passion that you have? How how is it that the the next generation is both uh, Having better living, not through chemistry, but through exercise and and, uh, and good habits, and also having a broader context of uh, what health is for uh, populations, uh, you know, by focusing on issues around climate change. Yeah, unfortunately, both in Canada and in the United States, um, there have been varying threats, uh, both commercial and governmental. Um, to uh, the rational acknowledgement of and dealing with climate change. And uh, 
that's part of the reason why PSR focuses on it and part of the reason why NextGenU focuses on climate change with our climate change course, too. It's uh, part, for me, of uh, what it's just another one of perhaps one of the most important ones, but another one of the uh, rational set of facts that people need to consider and make decisions based on if they want to live a healthy life and if they uh, want for future generations to have that opportunity, too. We've been speaking today with Dr. Erica Frank, professor at the University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health, where she is the Canada Research Chair in Preventive Medicine and Population Health and the founder of NextGenU.org. You can find out more about her work by going to www.NextGenU.org. Dr. Frank, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Thank you. It's my great pleasure. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, the Urban Institute is out with a new report that looks at how the Affordable Care Act has affected the number of uninsured. Its survey data showed that the number of uninsured adults dropped by 8 million between September and June. The open enrollment period for the ACA marketplaces began October 1st. The percentage of uninsured in the United States was an estimated 13.9% in June, compared with 17.9% in September, the survey found. The drop in the percentage of uninsured was more pronounced in states that expanded Medicaid under the ACA. In those states, the rate of uninsured was 10.1% in June, a 6 percentage point drop from September. Meanwhile, the states that haven't expanded Medicaid, there are currently 24 of them, have an uninsured rate of 18.3%, down slightly from a 20% rate in September. These are, of course, only estimates from a survey taken a few months after the first open enrollment period under the health care law. The data don't include a breakdown of the sources of insurance for the previously uninsured. They do, however, show that the insurance gains overwhelmingly occurred in families whose incomes were below 400% of the federal poverty level. That's $95,400 for a family of four this year, making those families eligible for subsidies on the insurance marketplaces or Medicaid coverage. The survey, which has been taken quarterly since 2013, is funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and the Urban Institute. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Medical errors are believed to be responsible for about 100,000 deaths per year. The medication errors play a big part in that number. 
In a study just released in the Journal of American Medical Informatics Association showed that a newly designed electronic medication alert system had a significant impact on the reduction of prescribing errors. We focused on alerts that are presented to physicians during the medication ordering process. So when they're in an electronic health record, how the alerts are displayed to them. And we found that there were some changes that we could make in how they were displayed that saved them time and reduced prescribing errors. Dr. Elisa Ross is a human factors engineer, focusing on how clinicians and patients interact with the healthcare system. She conducted a study at Roudbush Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Indianapolis. She notes that the overworked clinicians can have trouble discerning subtle differences in medications in the electronic medical systems. So they decided to change the design of the alert system in the electronic medical records of patients, creating a simpler, more easy, readable alert system for clinicians. We addressed a variety of errors and reduced errors in terms of usability, so errors that might be that they couldn't see the alert because it was hidden from the screen. The other errors in terms of reducing prescribing errors really just get back to providing the key information at the right point in time and not overloading the providers with information. The clinical trial showed a marked reduction in medication errors and a better handle on understanding potential adverse drug interactions ahead of time. Noting that a good alert design may offer better cognitive support for clinicians during busy patient encounters. So in this study, we focused on three basic types of alerts. Those for adverse reactions, where a provider is ordering a medication that the patient's had an allergic reaction to. We also looked at drug-drug interactions. And then we also warned providers about cases where patient had low creatinine clearance or impaired kidney function. The results were so convincing, they're expanding the trial to further test design ideas that make the process even more seamless for clinicians prescribing multiple medications every day. A simpler, clinician-faced approach to reducing all-too-common prescribing errors, yielding better outcomes for patients and their health practitioners. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcasts from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.